podcast one production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this special mini-series, I'm delving deeper into one of the most desirable markets in the world for Aussie business, China. With such a large population and a booming economy to boot, China can present a goldmine of opportunities for business owners. But I know from experience that the landscape can be tricky to navigate. So, across these next five episodes, I'll speak to a business owner who has succeeded in China and an expert to find out the biggest challenges Aussies face when trying to make it in the so-called Middle Kingdom and, most importantly, how to overcome them. Once when I was meeting with a journalist in a hotel in Shanghai on my first trip to China, she told me that she'd once interviewed an Australian businessman who'd described in great detail how he'd stuffed cash down his trousers in order to get it out of China. Well, she thought this was hilarious, but she also explained to me that it was actually very necessary. Because in those days, China had very strict laws about setting up businesses and repatriating profits back to Australia. Well, times have changed in China, and nowadays as China's opened up more to the world and joined the World Trade Organisation, etc., it's much easier to operate a business there as a foreigner. On a more recent trip to China, to Qingdao, in Shandong province in the north of the country, I was walking from the port, it's a port city, through to the famous Qingdao brewery, and I reflected that whilst it's got easier to operate a business in China, there are still important things to know in terms of the legal system, foreign ownership, intellectual property, and so on. Because like the businessman interviewed by my journalist friend, you don't want to end up losing your shirt or your trousers because you went to China unprepared. So first, let's cover the basics of how to set up in China. John Farga is the Managing Director of Steriline Racing, a business that manufactures horse racetrack equipment in both Hong Kong and China. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Tim. It's a pleasure to be involved. Now, tell us the story of Steriline Racing. What do you do? Steriline Racing is the uh, world's number one horse racing starting gate manufacturer, and uh, we're based in Mount Barker in South Australia, and we export to 53 countries, um, all sorts of equipment, that the, basically the steel equipment that might go onto a horse race track or a greyhound track. So basically the starting gates, the rails, the what do they call it, the steward's tower, everything yes. that's steel on a race track. Steward's towers, uh, winning posts, um, some of the communication sy- warning systems for the gates. Um, so pretty much any, any metal work that's required on the track. We don't, we're not involved in the grandstands. You're in about 53 countries. I, I know you're in the UK because I interviewed you for the Airport Economist UK episode. Where else are you in Asia and Middle East and so on? Uh, Hong Kong, um, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, sort of most of Southeast Asia, I guess. Um, obviously, Australia and New Zealand, uh, all through the Middle East, pretty much every country that races there, and, and that includes places like um, the Emirates, Oman, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait. Wherever someone likes a horse or likes horses racing, you'll be there. Well, absolutely. Much. We'll be at the start and we'll be at the finish. Fantastic, fantastic. So how did it all start, you know, in, in Hong Kong and in Guangzhou in, in China? How did that start? I guess 
we wanted to expand our export market and the, the best way to do that was to get the high profile tracks. Well, that was our strategy at the time. And we knew that everybody watched what Hong Kong did and we knew that everybody watched what uh, Britain did. In fact, in places like uh, the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, they still were still referring to England as the mother country. So they wanted to know that whatever they were going to do in horse racing had been done by some of the high-profile people that they chose to copy. So we uh, decided that Hong Kong was the number one place in Asia to be, and if we could get in there, we could expand you know, a bit like the, the pebble in the pond. Um, and that was probably 25 years ago, and it's, it's worked extremely well for us. So, John, what challenges have you and other SMEs faced doing business in China and Hong Kong? They're different, um, but they're the same. Hong Kong is obviously very, very Western. It's a, it's a very free economy, but they expect perfection and the Hong Kong Jockey Club in particular, they aspire to be the world's number one racing jurisdiction, so everybody has to perform. Anything less than 100% is basically a failure. Um, but they're good people to work with, and they are forgiving and will work with you through the, through the challenges. In China, it was different because customers was the number one challenge we had getting our shipping containers in. There's, there was a possibility that they could be delayed for weeks and even months. Uh, so we had to be extremely careful with the paperwork. The paperwork for the free trade agreement documentation was even more challenging to the point where we just about gave up on that one. Um, but it costs a huge amount of money if you have a container delayed for two reasons. One is that the project is delayed and you don't meet the deadlines. The other is that the container, and we face this, the threat that it would actually be sent back to Australia uh, for what turned out to be uh, relatively trivial issues. We just didn't know how to manage them and we had to learn that along the way. And I know that some of the other SMEs working on the same project had similar challenges. Do you think in exporting, John, there's a role for Australian government or state government or host government? Absolutely. The government is incredibly important to Sterilines operation. We use Austrade in uh, you know, all 53 countries that we work in and uh, the, their on-the-ground knowledge is, is absolutely invaluable. Uh, the state government in Hong Kong, South Australian government, has a, an office uh, an officer embedded in Austrade there and she's terrific and she's you know, on, up to speed and uh, alerts you to challenges that you might face that you haven't even thought of along the way. The other thing that's important with government involvement, both the host country and the Australian government, is that horse racing is... A, a sort of a form of agriculture. So the, the Ministry of Agriculture in many countries will be heavily involved and therefore it's good to be able to have a relationship with our the departments of agriculture back here in Australia and particularly um, veterinary um, experts because they can help us around problems long before they become problems and, and it's too late once, once you're caught up in something. Do you find that a lot of Australian SMEs set themselves up in Hong Kong in terms of access to Asia or indeed for getting into China? Do you think that's the jurisdiction they're most comfortable with? 
Well, it's logical that they would because the legal system is is understandable. Bottom, you know, from our side, um, Singapore also is a good spot to do that. But to go into China, obviously, since um, the British pulled back from Hong Kong, it makes even more sense. I think there's, you know, obviously two policies, one country. You know, it's it's uh, people can feel comfortable there, speak the language, and then find. Plenty of uh, Chinese mainland people who are actually living and working in Hong Kong who are more than happy to help uh, across the border. How have Steriline found their, you know, your business in Hong Kong compared to China? Because you've got a, uh, a, a joint project, don't you, with yes. uh, with Southern China, Guangzhou? Yes, uh, it, it's obviously different in many ways, but it's basically exactly the same because we've been supplying equipment to Sha Tin and Happy Valley are the two racetracks in Hong Kong, which, you know, are pretty famous. Most people know about them. Um, I think that going to the night races in, in Happy Valley is one of the eight wonders of the world. It's it's that good. Uh, so that's really the very, very top end of, of the market. Um, technically, they demand uh, perfection and they expect to get it um, and we do our very best to make sure that we deliver. They, being the Hong Kong Jockey Club, decided to, they needed to expand their operation because they were restricted in Hong Kong for obvious reasons with space and they needed more open space uh, on, on the mainland somewhere to be able to rest and then train horses and found uh, some land at a place called Chung Fa, which is about two and a half to three hours into mainland China from Hong Kong. And they've built what is almost a mirror image of Sha Tin. It's a training facility capable of uh, eventually holding 1,250 to 1,300 horses. And there's turf tracks, there's, there's everything that you would find at a track in, in uh, Sha Tin. So, John, building relationships has been very important in your international business. Is it different in China compared to what you do in Australia or elsewhere? I think every country's uh, slightly different, Tim. Um, I think in China, it's certainly in the area that we were working in, it varied from profession to profession. We had some exposure to the medical emergency services that would be helping on the Chung Fa racetrack site if something somebody got hurt or something went wrong. And their expectations and the way they thought through things was very much different than an Australian would. Of course, China is much different to Hong Kong because China is a controlled economy. So the law is the law. And you need to understand simple things like uh, WhatsApp is the is the sort of normal way of communicating through Hong Kong, for example, but WhatsApp doesn't work in very much of China. So then you've got to install WeChat and you need to know that WeChat may well be uh, scrutinised uh, in the process. So there are many things to to think about. It's different, and that's where the relationship bit is valuable. Because uh, if the, if the relationships are strong, you'll have plenty of friends warning you or advising you in which direction you might take next. And most of the people I talk to tell me that relationships are absolutely critical. For us, relationships are everything. Um, you know, it's, it's okay to have a product. It's okay to find a market, but without the the relationships, you you can't join those dots together. So I think that the biggest mistake 
that I see some Australian companies make, and, and other countries for that matter, is that uh, they realise there's a market for their product and they've got the product, but they haven't sort of connected all the pieces in between. And that's absolutely imperative. And if you talk to Austrade or any any of our government departments uh, that are involved in, in uh, export or Department of Foreign Affairs, they'll tell you the same thing. Now, do you find uh, that Australian SMEs uh, do quite well in, in Hong Kong and in China? Do you think they're pretty typical? Do they make mistakes? Do they... You know, are they, are they better than average? Tim, we all make mistakes. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, I'm an expert at that, I think. <laughs> uh, that's one of one of my qualities for sure. Um, I can only speak about the people that are involved in the sector that we're involved in, which is primarily around horse racing. And certainly there are some companies uh, that we were working with over there, some Australian companies, and they were doing a good job. They were making the same mistakes we were uh, or similar and we were helping each other work our way through those mistakes. The sorts of challenges that we experienced on the Chung Fa project, and it started in 2010 when that site was selected for the Asian Games in that year. We supplied the fencing uh, at that time, and we've been dabbling for a few years after that until this major project got underway five or six years ago, and we've been involved on and off ever since, and so have other... I think there was an irrigation company, certainly a, a turf-laying uh, operation out of Australia, Strathair. They laid the turf. Um, so there's been Australians involved, and there are Australian staff involved, but they're employed by the Hong Kong Jockey Club. We had heaps of problems. I mean, getting through, through getting our equipment through customs, trying to work out how to do the paperwork for the free trade agreement, uh, there's plenty of pitfalls, but uh, there's only one way to work to, to uh, understand them, and that's to have a go and make the mistakes. And, well, you've made mistakes, but you've been very successful, John. What would be your last sort of piece of advice to an Australian SME looking at uh, China? What would you advise them? It's a bit of a motherhood statement, but do your homework. I think it's it's the background that you do, and it's the relationships that you've formed. So without the relationships, it would be... I would have thought almost impossible. Um, I see relationships as the key to all of the trading that we do all around the world, and no less so in China. It's it's absolutely critical. But as we've already discussed, we were very fortunate to have an existing relationship with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. So I thought you were going to say it's horses for courses. <laughs> You've done it for me. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, John. Pleasure. Anytime. Well, we've heard from the business, now let's speak with the expert. Kevin Hopgood-Brown is Managing Director of Corporate Advisory Business, HHK Advisory. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. Good to be here. 35 years experience as a lawyer and businessman in China. How many times a year do you go to China? Oh, on an average year, I probably go 10 or 11 times. 10 or 11 times, wow. And you even go to Chinatown too sometimes. <laughs> as, as often as I can. Okay. One of my favourite places. Okay, we'll count that as well. Yeah. Now, we used to hear some horror stories about people going to China and not being able to get money out and losing their IP and so on. Do you think in, you know, since you first went there 35 years ago, it's now a lot 
easy yet? Well, the structures are much easier. So there's a well-defined bureaucracy in China. There's heaps of laws and regulations. So there's some clarity that that provides. And of course, the economy is a thousand times more uh, sophisticated today than it was in the early 80s. But the fundamentals are the same, Tim. And that is, you really need to take your time to get to know the market, to have a plan, to have a focus, uh, and then commit yourself. What's the most common mistake do you think foreign businesses make when they go to China? Probably not preparing long enough. Yeah. I mean, China, having a relationship with China is exactly the opposite of married at first sight. Okay, it's good. Uh, you spend uh, 18 months getting to know each other, and I mean getting to know your partner, your potential uh, business colleagues, but getting to know the country. How does it operate? We also have to remember that China is not one market. It's like several dozen markets. And so you really need to think about what your company has to offer. Is it a service? Is it a product? Are you looking for product distribution in China? What suits you? Start small and grow off of a small base. Now, I wanted to play a bit of Chinese sort of legal business bingo with you because there's a few terms that get thrown about uh, that a lot of people don't know. So I just want to start with the basics. What's a memorandum of understanding, an MOU? An MOU in China, a memorandum of understanding, or sometimes referred to as a letter of intent, um, is often the first stage in relationship building. And so it has no legal binding impact in China. Um, the Chinese uh, sign them pretty regularly. They love them, don't they? They, they love a ceremony and it, cutting it, ribbons. It, and, it's, yeah. it's, it can be very formal. Um, Sometimes we're dismissive of them in, in our system here, but uh, in the Chinese system, they are an important milestone in relationship building. And typically, an MOU or a, a letter of intent will describe what the parties want to do, do with each other and how they'll work together and who will be responsible for what and what the next stages will be in developing that relationship. So that's where you start. When you get a bit more serious, what's a JV? A, a JV is a joint venture. And in our system here, uh, a joint venture is usually a partnership. It's where two companies or two individuals come together. You bring something to the table. I bring something to the table. We're going to jointly own and operate uh, this venture. For the first 15, 20 years of China's opening, a joint venture was really the only way foreign companies could get involved in the economy, but that's changed now. A term I really love that I first heard in, in Shanghai is a woofy. Now, that's a, a wholly foreign-owned enterprise. Can you it explain is. a woofy? It is. Um, a woofy, I think they've been looking for 20 years for a different acronym uh, and haven't found one yet. It is, it is. Um, but when you tell your board of directors that we're going to set up a Wolfie, people uh, <laughs> tend to raise their eyebrows a bit. But a Wolfie is just, um, it, it's a fancy way for saying it's a wholly owned subsidiary uh, okay. in China. So it's a company that a foreign company sets up or a foreign individual sets up um, that they own 100% of. And the last one, which is quite new to me, is a, a FIPI, a Foreign Invested Partnership Enterprise. What's that? Um, th that's very new on the scene. And uh, that is, China does have a partnership law, and it allows um, foreigners to uh, come to China and set up a partnership with uh, a Chinese partner. 
and the new regime that you, that you're referring to provide some legal structure for that. So we've got these, you know, various institutions and legal arrangements, and everyone's going to have an MOU to start with. What's mostly used in China now? Do people do the joint ventures or do they go for the Wolfie model? How does well, it work? from about the mid-90s, which is when Wolfies were first introduced, uh, as often in China they were introduced informally and then legislation followed a couple of years later, uh, when foreigners had the option of doing something other than a joint venture, they often took it. And... Um, today, I think maybe 60 to 70 percent of the new direct investment, foreign investment in China is in the form of a Wolfie, a wholly owned subsidiary. Now, when people do make, you know, rookie mistakes in China, are there are there legal remedies in the, in the legal system? Oh, there are. And I've been involved in a number of cases over the years where we've had good legal success in, in challenging someone who we feel has breached a contract or violated um, uh, my client's rights in, in some way. Uh, in fact, in the early mid-90s, we uh, prosecuted the first successful um, copyright uh, uh, violation against a state-owned enterprise in, in Beijing. There are things that you can do. However, it's just like here. Any business person will tell you the last thing they want to do is um, uh, go into litigation. And so what you do is you build your relationships in such a way that you've got other options for solving your problems. Do you think there are cultural issues that we might understand, like the view of copyright is that, you know, it's just just flattery, you know, copying something? Or, you know, if you go into a business partnership and they say, can you provide a scholarship for my son or daughter who's going to university in Australia, that's quite acceptable, isn't it, in in China? Less so today than even five years ago. One of the great, uh, I think, revolutionary changes that uh, Xi Jinping has brought to China over the last four years is that state-owned enterprises and other state apparatus now have a pretty tight code of conduct to follow. And so when I'm dealing with state-owned enterprises, um, they're very conscious of no gift giving, no special favors. And I've even had to sign a few uh, statements in advance saying, in order for us to have a relationship, we're not going to ask each other for for gifts. Uh, you're not going to offer things to us. It would be the kind of thing that you'd regularly encounter with Fortune 50 countries, uh, com- companies around the world. Um, but now it's coming to China, and it has changed the business culture. Has it changed your thinking about ethics and culture, or do you think you've just adapted to the Chinese way? Um, I think that probably most Australians who who work in China need to have their cultural benchmarks well-established, their ethical standards well-established. Um, it makes it much easier. There are just some things that you won't do. And when you see unethical behavior, uh, I find in my case, usually my radar goes off. Uh, and if your radar goes off, there's probably an issue. And so there are ways that you can talk about it with people, get advice from Austrade and uh, legal counsel and, and um other experienced business people in the market. Uh, but those are no-go zones. Uh, you don't cross those lines because it's only going to end up in grief. Do Australian firms tend to set themselves up in Hong Kong because they're familiar with the legal institutions rather than 
in mainland China? What, what, what do you find is most usual? 30 years ago, people would regularly set up in Hong Kong and then they'd venture out into the mainland in a very cautious, progressive way. Frankly, there's no need for that these days. Um, if I was going to start uh, a business in China, I would go directly into China. I would go to Beijing, Shanghai, or one of the other cities. One of the things that's quite interesting, Tim, is that just this last week, China announced that 15 cities have been added to the top tier. Oh, great. So okay. tier one cities used to wow. be Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. The big four. Now there's now there's 19 of them. Oh wow! And, and that is uh, a good example of how rapidly China is changing, and we as foreigners coming into the China market have a lot of work to do to familiarize ourselves uh, with that environment. But those those mere country towns that are yeah, 15 million people. Exactly yeah. right. That's right. So what would be your final tip for someone from a small business looking to go to China? Be focused, be realistic, seek advice, seek out Austrade, seek out the Australia-China Business Council, listen to podcasts, um, do as much research as you can, find out what other people have learned, and then be realistic uh, as you execute your plans. Well, Kevin Hopgood-Brown, thank you for your legal advice and your, and your, your business insights. Thank you, Tim. Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.